So first, a couple of caveats. This is not going to be a sermon. It's not going to be marching through a number of biblical passages, although we'll be referring to biblical passages. The hope is that this will be more of a conversation. So I would like you to feel free to slip up a hand and ask a question, if you have one, in the midst of what I'm talking about. Um, I don't want this to just be some kind of monologue, particularly because there are many here who have thoughts on vocation that it would be wonderful to have them share with us. It's not just me. Um, But I also recognize that, especially perhaps for some of the university students, Although, interestingly, the life of Moses and the disciples that we just heard about suggests that the question of vocation can never really be left as something settled. But especially for university students, I remember well, as I'm sure most of us here do, that time in your life, whether it's leaving school or leaving university, where you have to really start thinking hard about, what am I going to do? What, what should I do with my life? So I recognize that that is an important stage of life, and I will have a few thoughts on on that sort of question as well. So hopefully we'll have a kind of dialogue uh, rather than sort of me up here giving a, a lecture. Having said that, it may be good for us to start out just by laying out a bit of what we mean by this word vocation. This is, of course, a word that is is not limited to the church these days. Um, It's not a word like salvation or grace or faith, which would have a particular religious connotation. It's a word that's used uh, by many to reflect on not just having a job, but actually doing something that one takes to be meaningful for some sort of reason. Something that maybe one finds joy in. A kind of calling, if you will, and indeed that's where the roots of this word come from. But for us as Christians, the word vocation has a particular meaning. As we even saw in the story of Jesus calling some of those first disciples, as Christians, we believe that vocation is ultimately something that is oriented around God's call on our lives. It's not something that we just go out and make up for ourselves. It's not just work. It's ultimately about God having some sort of claim upon our lives and therefore having the right to call us and determine for us that sort of thing that we should do to serve him. Vocation is following Christ And even as we heard this morning, it's about walking with God. That, in its biggest sense, is what vocation is for us as Christians. We have been called out to follow Christ. But that's huge. In fact, that can be very abstract at some point. I start with that. Because we need to think about vocation in our everyday lives. That's really the purpose of this seminar series, to think about what vocation means day to day. But whatever we think about in terms of the day to day of our life, it always has to be subordinate to that larger sense of being called to walk with God. Indeed, Much of the biblical foundation for thinking about vocation is what's being laid out for us in the the morning series on Genesis 1 through 11. So much about vocation is, who did God create us to be? What are we supposed to do? Vocation brings up that sense of direction in life, of meaning in life. And in that way, it's very different than just having a job, although those two oftentimes will come together. We'll, we'll, try, to talk, uh, we'll try to talk about how complex this can be, um, because just having a job can certainly be part of vocation, but it can, of course, be something bigger than that. So as I started out saying, there are many here who have made decisions about vocation, about career, 
They're well along in their careers, some who have retired from careers. And yet, I want to suggest that reflecting on this question of vocation is never really one that goes away. Just because we might have settled on, say, a career, even a sense of, this is my vocation, being open to God's call means that we must take seriously that God still has a claim on us. And it may be the case, as with Moses, as with the fishermen disciples, that God may call us again, that God's claim on us might shift where we go in life. And then there are some here who are actively preparing for and thinking about what the next stage of life is going to be. What are they going to do? Vocation, of course, is something incredibly important when you're on that side of life. So, vocation, it's larger than a job. It's a much more significant category. It is, if you will, the big umbrella category under which work and job and how we live life falls. For us as Christians, Vocation is primarily walking with God. Discipleship is our primary vocation. But being a follower of Christ also includes lots of the particulars of what we do in our lives. If we go back to the, to the picture of Moses, for example. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the large ark of the life of Moses. Already, God has a special plan for Moses. We see that in his birth, when God protects him through his parents from the decree that Pharaoh had given, saying all male children had to be killed when they were born. Already, God is doing something in the life of Moses. But then Moses grows up largely in Pharaoh's household, and one day goes out and sees two of his brothers fighting, and he's, he's already himself slain an Egyptian for oppression. And they say, what are you going to tell us how to live? We know what you did. So he runs and ends up in the wilderness. And then what does he do? What is Moses doing in the wilderness when God meets him in a spectacular way? Honestly, a real question. He's a shepherd. He's out there shepherding sheep, okay? Nothing wrong with being a shepherd. In fact, it may well be the case, especially given the way that God uses the imagery of a shepherd and identifies his people as sheep, it may well be the case that Moses learned valuable lessons dealing with headstrong sheep that came into play in particular ways in his life. I'm not saying we can point to a verse that says that. But it is interesting to think about the fact that Moses is a shepherd and then is called to be one of the leaders of God's people. But Moses' life takes a dramatic turn when God shows up in a burning bush and tells Moses, you are the one I have chosen to lead my people out of their slavery. I've heard the cries of my people, and you are the one I have called. Moses says, not me. I don't want the job, but thanks. That's interesting. He comes up with a list of excuses, and God meets each one of his excuses one by one. Now, that's interesting. Because it already suggests that when God calls us to a particular vocation, he also equips us to do the work he's called us to. But notice, Moses is not full of joy when God shows up and calls him to the work of leading the people out of Egypt. That doesn't mean that vocation is always a bad thing, that we always have to go around thinking, oh, what awful thing does God have in store for me that I don't want to do? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that sometimes, when we think about vocation, we have to set our priorities correctly. Vocation is primarily about listening to God's call on our lives, 
not primarily about what we determine we want to do with our lives. There's a real humility that comes along with this language, this concept of Christian vocation. So Moses the shepherd, God shows up and tells him explicitly, this is what you're going to do with your life. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy in some ways? God shows up and tells us, bang, here's your vocation. This is what you're supposed to do with your life. Well, it's interesting because Moses didn't think it was so nice. And yet many times we find ourselves, uh, especially those of us who are on the front end of this question, full of anxiety. What is it God is calling us to do with our lives? For most of us, God won't show up in a burning bush or a vision or a dream or some other spectacular way and say, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. It happens. Not only in scripture, but it happens to some people even still today. The Spirit of God can lay claim on us in ways that will fundamentally alter the direction of our life with such clarity that we hear God's voice. But that's not the normal experience for most Christians who are following Christ. It happens. I, I had a um, co-worker at a previous church who told a phenomenal story of Jesus walking into her office one day. She, wasn't a, she was an atheist and telling her what she was going to do with her life. And just like that, her life was so radically transformed that there's no way to question the reality of the call that was placed on her. That's never happened to me. I dare say it hasn't happened to most of us. So are we lost? What do we do? Are there any ideas or guidance that we can take from Scripture and from Christian history that might suggest for us some ways to think through how we might uh, consider what our calling is? I think we should spend the rest of our time talking about that question. What does the Bible have to say in various points? Again, we're not going to go through passage by passage. We're going to try and think more broadly. What, what is there in Scripture that might help us think more clearly about the direction that our life should take? Well, for starters, it is interesting to note that the Bible tends to have a lot more commands about what we ought not do than it does to say, you must go and do X. That's really interesting to reflect on this for a moment. We know, take the Ten Commandments, we know that we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't steal, we shouldn't commit adultery, tick, tick, tick. We know what we shouldn't do. But what does that mean for what we should do when it comes to the question of vocation? Some people have had the experience of opening scripture and having a verse leap off the page, as it were, and grab them and say, this is what you're supposed to do. Not so much unlike Moses in his way. But again, for most of us, it doesn't work quite that way. Most of us actually don't have some direct word from God saying, you must do this with your life. But we do have a lot that we know we ought not to do. And what that might suggest is that we have a great deal of freedom when it comes to the question of vocation. If God has not sent a thunderbolt down, as he does with some, to tell you this is what you must do, there is a degree of freedom within which we can work as we reflect on the question of vocation. But how then might we begin to think through the options? What does it mean to have that freedom? Well, I want to go back to where we started by suggesting that the big umbrella is walking with God, being 
a disciple. So that no matter what particular career path or job or work we might end up doing, that big idea of vocation is always the primary one which gives guidance to those other decisions that we make in our lives. So there is, for most of us, a real sense of freedom to pursue what we do with our lives so long as we are not falling afoul of those things that God says we must not do. I think this is important as well because sometimes there can be this idea in Christian circles that God has this one perfect, pure will for your life and you must find it. Now that's something perhaps we could even talk about. As I said, please feel free to jump in at any point. I suspect from one perspective that is true. God knows what he wants from our lives. But for most of us, he hasn't actually just laid it out. So it's not, I think, all that hopeful for us to go around thinking, oh my goodness, am I doing God's will? God has told us what not to do. He's told us a lot of things we should do as well. But oftentimes, our living into God's will is our living in obedience, knowing those things that we shouldn't transgress and doing those things that we should do, not so much where we go to interview for a job or what career path we choose. Is God in control of that? Yes. But has he told me that? Well, maybe. But if not, then I don't have to go around worrying, am I doing God's will for my life? Um, I once heard uh, uh, a New Testament scholar whose name has just slipped out of my head say, um, if you want to know what God's will for your life was on Tuesday, wait for Wednesday. Now, there's some real wisdom in that. Because it suggests that our task, you know, is to, to live... To pray as if God really is the one in control, because he is. But to live as if he's given us the responsibility to live rightly, because he has. These two things, which sometimes theologically look like an irresolvable tension, are in fact the reality of Christian living. So we have freedom. And I don't think we need to be consumed with anxiety about where God is calling us so long as we know that we are staying under that big umbrella of what God has said not to do and those particular things he has given us guidance to do. The situation is different if we're a kind of Moses person. <laughs> if God tells you this is what you have to do, that's totally different. Moses doesn't have a lot of freedom. But for most of us, there's a great deal of freedom. How then might we go about thinking through within this freedom what it means to follow Christ in a vocation? I'm just going to give some thoughts here, some reflections. I've taken many of these from a book by a Reformed theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. It's called Knowing the Will of God. And he has a particular chapter in there called Consider Your Calling which I think is chocked full with helpful little nuggets of advice. So I've stolen some of this from him. First of all, we need to be brutally honest with our motivations. Why are we pursuing the thing that we're pursuing? What is it that's driving us? When we think again about vocation as the big umbrella, discipleship, that should set for us certain things that ought to guide our steps. Now, let's just sort of talk through some specifics. If we're pursuing a particular path for reasons that only have, for example, to do with our own personal gain, Maybe they're driven by our own personal pride. Maybe they're driven by the fact that a parent has said, this is what you have to do. It could be 
that that's still the way God is leading us, but those reasons are not reasons to follow a particular vocation under the big umbrella of discipleship. I knew someone in seminary who had vowed at one point in his life that he would never go to seminary. He wanted to become a lawyer. And the reason he wanted to become a lawyer is because he had some fantastic pictures of Lamborghinis and other things uh, around his room as he was growing up. And he was pretty sure that going to seminary was not really a life choice that would lead to that sort of outcome. God has a funny way. C.S. Lewis calls God the hound of heaven. He has a funny way of going after us in these things, even if he doesn't speak directly necessarily. It's precisely when we begin to examine our motivations that we can begin to ask those critical questions. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this to serve the kingdom of God in some way? Am I doing it as a disciple? Or am I doing it because I just want to be rich? For that particular individual, that's what it came down to. And that became a moment of revelation in that person's life. Say, I can't go that path if it's really just about the money. Now, did I just say that Christians shouldn't be lawyers? Did I even just say that Christians shouldn't be wealthy? No, not at all. But there are some Christians who will have to deal with the fact that they shouldn't be lawyers if all they really want is the money. These are different things, okay? Now, the truth is, I think that for most of us, motivation is a really difficult thing to suss out because most of us don't have a single pure motivation. Most of us have gotten really good at deceiving ourselves when it comes to motivation, about reasoning our way through, rationalizing. Here's why I can do X or Y. So this is the kind of thing that has to be done with a great deal of prayer and a great deal of thought. And if one discovers that their motivation isn't really about the glory of God, about being a disciple of Christ, that, by the way, doesn't mean for everyone, so you can't be a lawyer. What it means is you got to address the issue of motivation. Because if you're pursuing a path that is only about self-aggrandizement, gain, wealth, getting more stuff, then one thing you can know is that that is not being a disciple of Christ. And pursuing a vocation for that reason is not walking with God. Didn't say God can't use that. Just said that's not a Christian way of approaching vocation. Another thing that I think we need to take seriously, let me just pause and just see if there are any comments here before moving to a second point. Uh, And I'm appreciating, there is a roving mic. I would especially uh, appreciate, and I'm sure many of the rest of us would, hearing from people who've thought through these very issues and have some insight and wisdom to share with us. It's not just question time, it's reflection time. No? Okay. I'll keep going. If something comes to mind, do not hesitate to jump in, please. A second thing I think we can reflect on is, can we do the work that we're thinking about doing in ways that are just and in ways that are ultimately geared around service to others and honoring God? There's some interesting passages on this. It'd be really easy if there was just a principle we could slap down and say, ah, there it is. A Christian can't be whatever. There may be some points where we would determine, yes, indeed, that goes so clearly outside the bounds. I think John Newton is a great example of someone who really wrestles with this question. And after he becomes converted, gradually comes to the realization, I can't 
I can't support slavery anymore, even though he was himself a slaver for many years. But for most of us, it's not going to be quite that sharp or stark of a decision, I think. Um, And I think this is one of those points where it can be especially helpful for those of us who have been called to discipleship well into a career. What are we supposed to do? Do you have to chuck it all? Well, it depends. Has God said, has Jesus said, follow me and leave the nets? Well, if he hasn't, freedom, I think, is still the main concept we should be working with. But what can we do in those sorts of contexts? It's a really interesting story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. Maybe somebody, just to help uh, grease the skids a little, somebody could read this out for me. Is that okay? Read it out big and loud. Luke chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Let me just set up the context while somebody thinks about volunteering. Uh, The context is John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And he's preaching a message of repentance because he says that the kingdom of God is coming near. And people are beginning to respond. And one of the questions that they implicitly ask is, so what's my vocation now? It's not said quite that way. But people want to know, what should I do? And then we get this text. Anyone? Okay, Angus, thanks. Luke chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, this is fascinating. Here are people who genuinely want to repent, to turn their lives around so that they're ready when the Messiah shows up and when the kingdom of God comes. Notice what John doesn't say to them. Tax collectors come up to him and say, what should we do? He doesn't say, oh, you filthy tax collector. Drop your job. You got to stop collecting taxes for that Roman government. That's curious, right? Because the kingdom of God is a direct threat in many respects to the Roman government. Think about the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Herod, who's not himself a Roman, but Herod is threatened by the birth of the king of the Jews. And yet, here's John, and he doesn't tell these people who are turning, as it were, midstream in their lives, he doesn't say to them, you have to leave what you're doing. What he says to them is, if I can use different language, you need to do what you're doing as a disciple. Can you do what you're doing with justice? Can you do what you're doing as service to others? Can you do it in a way that honors God? Now, I don't, I don't know if anybody happens to know how um, tax collectors generally got their jobs uh, in the Roman Empire. Anyone happen to, to know how that worked? It's, it's an interesting way of, of running tax collection. I'm going to guess they bought the franchise. It's exactly what it was. They bought the franchise. <laughs> tax collectors are not those low lives who can't find anything else to do for some reason and think, well, maybe I can be a civil servant. I know I'll be scum of the earth and an outcast and my fellow Jews will hate me, but I got to do something. That's not the life of a tax collector. The life of a tax collector is somebody who's incredibly wealthy, who not only buys the franchise, but has to bid against others to get it. They lose out on a whole lot of money to get the right to go collect taxes. This is not a just incentive when it comes to collecting taxes. 
You suddenly have the authority of the Roman Empire behind you, and you want to turn a prophet. It's, you know, it, it, this is in the Gospel of Luke that we hear these tax collectors saying this to John, right? It's the Gospel of Luke where we also meet Zacchaeus, whose life has changed midstream and says, if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay them back. What is it, four times? If I've cheated anyone? I guarantee Zacchaeus lost a lot of money that day. I don't know if he stopped being a tax collector. So what's the point? Tax collectors would have been in some ways pariahs among certain circles, especially probably those who are really looking for the kingdom of God because they work with the enemy. And they do it in such a way that they're making a profit on the money they've paid out to have the privilege to go collect taxes. John doesn't say, walk away from that evil Roman government. John says, do your job with justice. That's going to hurt because you may be out a lot of money for that contract that you purchased. But that's how John says you can live that vocationally as a disciple. I think there's some wisdom and insight for us here. Being called to become a follower of Jesus does not necessarily mean that we drop whatever career and job we currently have. What it means, and for those of us who are thinking about what career and job to take up, what it means is that we have to think hard about whether or not and how we can do that job in ways which are just, in ways which are not extortionary, in ways which do not abuse other people. You know, going back to John Newton, it seems like at some point in his life, he came to the conclusion that he could no longer support a job that he had been involved in for some of these very reasons. It wasn't just. It was abusing people. So we need to think hard then, not necessarily about are we in the right job to please God, as much as are we doing the job we're in in a way that pleases God. That's a way that can locate our work under that big umbrella of the vocation of discipleship. It's not necessarily a way to say this is what you must do. Sorry about that. But the Bible often doesn't do that. Any questions on that point or other insight before we move? Yeah. Andrew. For many years, my father was the registrar of births, deaths, and marriages. Uh. I suspect if he were alive and in his job today, he would resign. Hmm. Interesting. Because of civil marriages. And it, was, it is built in to the whole job description that you have to go this route. And of course, it's become a political hot potato for a few Christians in this country. Indeed. So it's one thing to live Christianly in a fairly murky vocation. I think it's a different thing when there are legal issues and some in other professions, I think, are beginning to think about it in these terms. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So how, how might we reflect on that then in terms of this question? L I mean, let me ask you a question, Andrew. Is it a Christian response to say no Christian should ever be a registrar? It's a hard, I think it's a hard question. I don't know the answer. Yeah, I, 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 I've thought about it. I don't know either, really. Um, part of me says, you knew what you were getting into. Don't pick a fight. Mm -hmm. Either go for this or don't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit nervous about some of the Christian fights over this issue. Mm -hmm. But I also feel sympathy for somebody who came into a job, then the rules change. Absolutely. Anyone else want to weigh in? Yeah. 
So you could have two different individuals who would be doing that job and one might quit and one might feel that God was still for different reasons calling them there. That seems to me to be exactly right. I think part of saying that we have freedom in this area, unless God clearly says something else, means that we have to be very prayerful as we reflect on those questions. And I think two dedicated disciples of Christ could come to different conclusions on that. Now, and it's such a can of worms, but the decision might shift pretty radically if a pastor is faced with that sort of a, a question. It might. Because there's a context for pastoring which is different than a context for being a civil servant. But I don't know. Maybe others would want to weigh in on this. Let, let, me, let me add one more point to this bigger question that might help in some ways address what we're talking about right now. And that is that there is an element of vocation which is about providing for those who depend on us, including ourselves. This sort of question might look very different if one is working for the state under, say, the Soviet Union or Eastern Germany. How does one live as a faithful Christian in that context when one also has to provide for family and others? I think Christians could differ on the decisions that they would make in those sorts of contexts. But this is a part of vocation as well. And that means that there may well be times in our lives where we go out in the field and we shepherd some sheep. There's no shame. There's nothing wrong in doing work. In fact, work, as we've been reminded in Genesis, is pre-fall. It's given to us as part of being the image of God. Being able to work, having dominion is the language in Genesis over the earth, is almost certainly a way of saying humanity should imitate what God has done. Humanity can't create out of nothing, but we can bring order to chaos as, in a much more spectacular way, God himself does when he creates. In any case, um, this has got to be part of the conversation. Providing. That's part of the call of a disciple. Shall we move to, to a third way of reflecting on this? Angus, did you want to? Just sort of thinking through that issue that we've just been talking about. Yeah. So we're talking about a calling. So we're talking about the one who calls us. You know, we're reacting to a call, aren't we? And um, I'm thinking about a situation similar to the one that Andrew might have raised there. Yeah. Where we've got two people doing the same thing and one feels what God would be speaking to these people as individuals and it would in a sense would it not relate to their personal walk with him the, the level of maturity that they were at. So God might call one of them to come out of that situation where with the other one, there might be a period uh, where he continues in that before he hears God's call to come out. Yes. And I mean, I think maybe one place where we can think about an interesting analogy is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 about whether or not a Christian can go to a temple and eat food there. The interesting thing is Paul never says absolutely not. In fact, some places Paul seems to say, no, you probably shouldn't do it. In other places, Paul seems to say, but don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. Now, I mean, that's idolatry. 
Going to a temple, especially the, the issue seems to be if other believers or someone who's weaker sees you there, they might well themselves be sucked back into worshiping the gods, which Paul says we know aren't really gods anyway, so you can eat the meat, but maybe you shouldn't eat the meat. Uh, there may be some analogies there for the way that God can work with different believers at different points. And what Paul seems to ultimately be driving at is that we should think in terms of strengthening brothers and sisters as the way of making those particular decisions. I mean, look, uh, we have to face some, some realities here. If you've been to an ancient city, if you walked around and looked at, say, some of the stuff at Pompeii, um, ancient temples had a lot more going on than just sacrificing animals. Some of the very issues we're dancing around were religious practices at ancient temples. So there's a lot going on there that it's clear some in Corinth said we shouldn't have anything to do with that. And Paul, interestingly, doesn't come out and say, they're right, don't ever do it. He has a much more dare we say, convoluted response to the question, which seems to suggest that the ultimate measure here is whether or not you're helping brothers and sisters together grow in your discipleship. Okay, let's, yeah. So David, you said that we shouldn't have as a motivation that our parents say, this is what you need to do, you should go into this field. But yet, um, on the other hand, I think parents know their children very well, and so they can give them guidance as to, they've seen them maybe react or respond in different ways, they see their child as an extrovert and you know, might be better suited to jobs where they deal with people, things like that. Absolutely. Um, I think what I tried to say so I didn't write that bit down verbatim, is that that's not necessarily the reason to pursue a particular vocation. And we'll come back in a moment to the point you're pushing on. And that is, do you get to make this decision all by yourself? I think, to anticipate, the answer as a Christian, unless God calls you like Moses, is no. You are part of the larger body of Christ, but we're jumping ahead. So we'll come back to that. If I don't come back to it, call me out on it. <laughs> okay, so a third way that we can think about this question is to really stop and consider what gifts God has given us and how we can use those gifts. Already to come back to this imagery that Paul uses of the church as the body of Christ, he says at various points that every member has been given a gift by the Spirit. That's part of vocation. Because part of the job of the members of the body of Christ is to bring their gift and use their gift for the good of the rest of the congregation. I, um, I don't know if anybody grew up watching The Adams Family. Uh, if you don't know the show, one of the characters on the show... Oh, good grief. Is he called Hand? I think he's just called Hand. He's a disembodied hand, and he goes around and does various things. Well, part of what makes that bizarre and funny is that we know that a disembodied hand can't do anything. A disembodied hand is dead. Okay? Sometimes we imagine that that's how we can deal with church. Like, we're these little disembodied members just going off our own way. That's a recipe for spiritual death. It's not good for the body. The body doesn't function as well without its hands as it does with its hands. And it's not good for the hand, even if the hand thinks it should cut itself off to spite the body. It's bad for everyone. So in a way, this idea of thinking about gifts, and I think we can think about it beyond even just the particular spiritual gifting that God gives as part of the body of Christ. But it's a way of starting to think, okay, what am I supposed to do? I need to do what is in line with who God has created or, in the case of becoming a believer, recreated me to be. Gifting is part of that. And it's a recognition already that it's not just about me. Gifting is a way of saying God has given this. So I should find the right way to use it. 
That means then that one thing we should do is start trying to think about what we're gifted at and how we can use that in a way which falls under the umbrella of discipleship. You would not want me to draw banners for the church because I don't have artistic gifts, right? Anybody remember who Bezalel was? Bezalel was set apart by God to help create the accoutrement for the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. God took the gifts that he had put in Bezalel when he created him of artistry and said, I'm setting you apart so that you can make the tabernacle beautiful. That's biblical vocation. I don't know what Bezalel did before that moment, but the point is there is a coherence in vocation between discipleship and the gifts that are part of who God has created us to be. Not everyone has the same gifts. It doesn't work that way spiritually in the church, and we can sometimes do damage when we imagine that everybody has to have the gift that we have. And it doesn't work that way for us as people uh, who are disciples of Christ. So how do we sort out what our gifts are? That's, of course, the question. It's easy to talk about an abstract idea. You have gifts, now go use them. What are your gifts? Well, I think if we can move on just a little bit more, there's a way then to bring a fourth point in, and that is, what kinds of things do you like to do? What kinds of things are you good at doing? And by the way, all of us learn at one point or another that being good at something is not just what we think about it. It's about what others can recognize within us as well. If there's something that you are gifted to do, and you see a way that you can use that for the kingdom of God under this umbrella of discipleship, you are free to pursue that as a vocation. Now that can raise problems. Because... um, I spent uh, a good bit of time at Duke University in the U.S. And there would, from time to Duke University generally, is training people who will go out into the business world and especially be hedge fund managers and bankers. and, And it's incredibly expensive to attend that university. Parents put hundreds of thousands of dollars into that university education, right? This is America. Um, and, you know, I think the, the last time I checked, current tuition was something like $50,000 a year, and that doesn't include room and board. And mom and dad say, you're going to go and you're going to be an investment banker. But then they meet Jesus, They go to a chapel service and hear that there are people around the world who need the word of God brought to them, and they say, I'm going to be a missionary. The chapel, the dean of the chapel at Duke University, faced several of those conversations. There's there's an example, I think, where what a parent is saying and doing is not the dictator as to what vocation is when it comes to discipleship. Sorry, I went off script here a bit. Desires. What are our desires and what are our burdens? It may well be that if we can see ways that those desires and burdens are aligning with being a disciple, there is freedom there to pursue those things as our calling, our vocation to think about ways that we can do those things. Now, sometimes those things come with lots of other blessings and rewards, and sometimes the blessings that come with those things are not going to be the kinds of things that a parent who shelled out $200,000 is going to look at and say, yes, you're being richly rewarded because of the vocation you've chosen. And yet you might be doing exactly what God has designed you to do by using the gifts that he's given you to do. 
So within the freedom that we have, I think there's plenty of room for us to consider those things that give us joy and delight, as long as we can say that the joy and delight is actually of the Lord. Even though sometimes, like Moses, it's not very delightful at all, (laughs) at least for part of that time. Anyone else want to come in on this point or comment on it? Yeah, Maddie. I'm just thinking, David, about uh, Eric Liddell when he uh, Mm. said when he ran, he felt God's pleasure in the sense of um, he knew that his gift was from God and he was uniquely privileged to say that he wasn't going to run on a Sunday because he knew that that he was wanting to put God before His prizes. Yeah. What a great example, right? I was made to run, right? And why not? Yeah, thanks. I mean, Martin Luther famously opened up these categories uh, for, as part of the Reformation, to think about all of life falling under that umbrella of divine vocation. Not just some sort of special thing that only someone who trains to go into ministry proper, as if that's the real vocation. Not everyone is called to ministry. Not everyone is gifted to ministry. That's not what vocation is ultimately about. It is about discipleship. And that is something that every one of us as a Christian is called to. All right, then let's come to a fifth point. And this really brings up the point that that Debbie was making. What do others see in us? To go back to uh, the guy in seminary, that particular person had been told by several different people throughout his life growing up, you really should think about going to seminary. Maybe that's one of the reasons he was dead set against it. Isn't There's just that rebellious streak sometimes. It was interesting for that particular person because when it became clear that money was not the right motivation to do whatever you were going to do, suddenly it also became clear lots of other people had said certain things, had seen gifts, had seen inclinations. When you sit down as someone like that and finally think, you know what, I really do love thinking about the kind of stuff that you do in seminary, suddenly it begins to shift the way that you can do this calculus of making those decisions in the freedom God has given. Now, if if that particular individual had gone on and become a lawyer, I don't know what would have happened. God is gracious, though. But if he hadn't dealt with the motivation... There might have been a lot of heartache and destruction ahead, even if it looked good because you're making lots of money. So what do others have to say? Now, that means that one practical way to go about doing this is asking. Go to the people who have known you and ask, what do you see in me? It's a slightly different thing than a parent saying, you must become a doctor. Nothing else is appropriate. Uh, It's a way of saying, yes, parents, they have a great deal of insight oftentimes into a child because you've been with that child longer than that child's been aware of its own existence. You see things as a parent. But this is also where the body of Christ can come into play as well. There are people, especially if you've grown up in a church, but even people who are gifted with spiritual insights, who can give you advice. Now, it may not be, Thunderbolt, here's what you have to do. But it may be the sorts of things that can begin to help you think, okay, there really are some things that other people are seeing. I never really thought I was much good at getting up and talking to big groups of people. But people tell me that every time I do it, it's a blessing. So maybe I've got to work on this problem and think, perhaps I should use this gift to serve. That's the kind of way I think to approach 
just as one example, uh, dependence, showing one's dependence on the larger body of Christ and on those other people whom God has put in your life to give you guidance. But you might want to come back and add something to that as well, Debbie. I know you, if you had any other thoughts. Or anyone? I wonder if there's a danger that we tend to class certain uh, occupations, certain vocations, as more worthy than others. Yeah. Certainly there's someone I know whose, whose parents uh, felt that, you know, uh, first uh, highest vocation was missionary. Mm. Second highest vocation was medical. Uh, the best was medical missionary, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I was just thinking that, uh, when thinking about what, what Paul says about the state, Paul in his theology assumes or hopes for that we have a decent, fair operating state. Yeah. And that will only work if it is staffed by in the typical Western democracy, hundreds of thousands of decent, fair people who operate the state. I was just reflecting on, uh, in Luke and Acts, you read about centurions. Mm. Centurions get a good press in Luke and Acts, and really the Roman Empire needed uh, lots of good centurions in order to work properly, and Christians benefited from them. I think it's absolutely right. I mean, look, in a way, for a parent to say, you must be a missionary, is sort of claiming the role of God in someone's life. Now, there may be ways to say, I see certain gifts in you which suggest to me that this would be well-suited But if that person is not themselves called by God to that particular vocation, there could be a lot of damage that's done. Maybe God didn't create them to be a missionary. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Someone else might want to weigh in and might even want to disagree. Um, But I I think that's got to be right. Uh, James says, for example, in the context of thinking about teaching in the church, not everybody should even desire to do certain jobs in the church. We have to allow for God to be the one who's at work there. And we have to allow for these things to come together under that umbrella of discipleship even if it's not what we, as a parent, might want. Yes? So what if you have um, a friend or someone who, they, you've identified the gifts that they have and then we see, like, you know, you're really well suited for this, and they also are aware of it and know it, but kind of the thing is like, well, I haven't had the go-ahead from God. I'm still waiting to hear whether I should pursue this. Hmm. At what point do you wait and trust to hear from the Lord? At, but at the same time, when do you be proactive and actually take the steps and say, well, I haven't heard, but I still need to keep moving forward? Yeah, thanks, Holly. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and in some ways, it leads right into the very next point, the sixth point. What doors are opening? To have freedom and to try to live responsibly as a disciple doesn't necessarily mean that we just sit around waiting for God to throw the doors open. Maybe one way to begin to try and move forward is to say, will God open this door if I try to walk through it? If he doesn't, does that mean it's never going to open? Not necessarily. But how hard should we kick? against the door to try to break it open. That's not, I don't know if that's a direct answer, but it's a way of trying to reflect on we can try to move forward and we can see if God will allow us to move forward. And if he does, why not move forward? 
Now, I hope it's clear that, and th- those are basically the six points that I wanted to talk through, um, but I hope it's clear that this is not some kind of algorithm. You can't just do all your thinking in all these areas, throw it into the hopper, crank it, and out comes a vocation. This is about wisdom, about discernment. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes we have to wait. I don't think Moses was necessarily out of the will of God because he didn't run back and try to kick Pharaoh's door down and say, let the people go before God told him to do it. So in the meantime, I think we go back to the fact that we have freedom as followers of Christ. We can do our work. We can do it well. We can do it with justice and integrity. We can do it as disciples of Christ. And if we're doing that, we're walking with God. And that means that what we're doing is far more meaningful than just showing up and punching a card and getting a paycheck. That's pretty much what I have reflected on. But again, you know, maybe now for, the, for five minutes or so, we could have some more direct sort of summit, summation conversation. Yes, please. And uh, this kind of your point six about what doors are open, um, it feels more for me... It's not so much the door. I see the doors that are open, but it feels more like I'm being dragged through them than Uh, trying to um, feel if it's right to to go there. And I could have almost written a book on the amount of experiences I've had tonight sat here. Um, Even just now, for instance, as I speak, it feels I question myself in the sense of. for me, I've, I, I used to be a joiner, and I went through yeah. a bit of a midlife crisis, spiritual awakening, turned to Christianity, didn't really work. Had some um, strange experiences, let's say, hmm. and eventually, 12 years later, have come back to Christianity, hmm. and I'm kind of weeding out a Christianity that works for me. Hmm. So... When I stopped my joinery business in 2011, it was to, to work as a life coach, which is the training I'd been doing in psychospiritual training I'd done in London. And I thought I was going to be a life coach, which trickled along. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that last September, I woke up one morning and just started writing a book. Mm-hmm. And the book was finished by 29th of December. And wow. I publishers. Wow. When I, all the way through the book I'm writing, I'm listening to my, what I would call my tree of knowledge, saying you're not a writer, what do you think you're doing? Hmm. And my tree of life saying, you're writing a book. You know? So it's, it's been quite different, difficult to... Because I, I, I could feel the vocation that was there in the first half of my life to be a joiner, and I was good at it. Um, but it's been trickier. And what I kind of write about is materialistic purpose, meaning and value, and then awakening yeah. to spiritual purpose, meaning and value. Yeah. Yeah. So even as I've sat here and thought, well, I put my hand up and feeling my resistance to that, what I feel is, if it feels easy, if it feels, uh, easy is not quite the right word, but if it feels like it's for the self or the ego, then it doesn't, I feel I want to resist mm-hmm. um, because I don't want it to be for the self. Mm-hmm. And so this feels crucifying, <laughs> even do what I'm doing. So. Yeah. That's where I feel the vocation mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rob. Uh, okay. Just very briefly. So there is a danger, and exactly mm. what, what, what we just heard, and I think that's great. Right? There's a danger that what we think we're good at we then take on for God. And 
very rarely, and in the example you've given us, God doesn't use man's strength. Why would he have chosen Moses if he was going to use someone to lead? Yeah. You know? So it wasn't something that he saw in Moses. It wasn't something he saw in the disciples. It's almost the opposite of who he should have chosen. And there's times in our lives when God will give us the gift for that particular task. It's not something that's right. in us. Yeah, yeah. So the joiner decides he's going to write a book. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing, that God, God gifts gifts for particular tasks. So sometimes there's a danger when we're younger and we think, I'm good at this, mm. so that's what I'm going to do. Mm. Why would God use something that we're good at? God will give us the gift or enhance what Absolutely. Um, we, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, but I think as sort of a, a closing, I think, yes, to, to all that's been said, it's, it's right, it's true. Um, and yet sometimes God uses who he's created us to be as well. Uh, this is part of the wisdom element of trying to discern vocation, along, I think, with the freedom element. But when we're certain that God is calling a certain way, that's when things really change in terms of are we going to obey what God is calling us to do at that point? 